So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. For Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. And then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. Lord, would you bless the reading of your word today, and would you help me to communicate your word? Lord, would you help us, Lord, to see the truth of your word and be transformed by it? In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated this morning. What do you do when you're overwhelmed? Some people, when we're overwhelmed, we just turn into the chaos that's happening around us. Some people, when you're overwhelmed, shut down and quiet down. We pull the covers over our head, I'm overwhelmed. Some people, when you're overwhelmed, I go buy a half gallon of ice cream when I'm overwhelmed. I I eat my feelings. This is so true. Pastor Katie can identify and and, uh, reaffirm this, that I go buy some ice cream and I say, I got to just take a break from the world for a second. I'm overwhelmed, and this, and I'm not saying that I must be overwhelmed a lot. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not saying that's a healthy choice. I'm just, I'm just confessing. I'm just, we're just being real here this morning. But what do you do? What do you do when you're overwhelmed? The last few weeks we've been talking about biblical prosperity, and we've talked about how God wants to bless you, and we've talked about how God wants to increase you, and that we have God's favor on our lives when we're walking with Jesus, and we talked about how generosity is the key that unlocks the door to God's blessings, and we talked about having victory over the enemy, and we talked about victory over our own sin, and we've talked about God as our provider, that he'll always provide more than enough, and we've we've been dealing with that, but the other side of that is the reality that sometimes life is tough. That even though we have the promise of biblical prosperity and even though we have the promise of God's blessing, sometimes life is hard. And you can't talk about the blessings of the Lord without talking about the difficulties of life. Sometimes it does feel like the enemy's winning. Sometimes it does feel like life is dragging us down. The bills are due struggling to overcome our own sin in our lives. Marriage sometimes is hard, and it takes hard work. The kids go crazy, and they start doing their own thing. Mental illness is real. Trauma is real. Abuse is real. These are all the realities of life. Sometimes life is hard. If you'll remember, in the first message that I preached on biblical prosperity, I taught you that prosperity is not the absence of adversity, It's the promise that God will be with you in the adversity. Prosperity is not the absence of difficulty. It's the promise that God will see you through that difficulty by his grace and his faithfulness. But my message today is, is what do you do when you're overwhelmed? When life has gotten difficult, when things are challenging, when it seems like Satan is winning, what do you do? And that's where the people of Israel found themselves in Judges chapter 6. The book of Judges, it starts off with Israel. They are being led by a man named Joshua, who was the prophet Moses' kind of protege and spiritual son. But Joshua is getting advanced in age as well. They have conquered, for the most part, the promised land that God had promised them. Joshua was a godly man. He was a man who listened to God and obeyed God. But then 
in the very first chapter of Judges, Joshua dies. And there's, there's no one left that's a righteous man or woman to lead the nation of Israel. And they begin to drift off course. And, and they begin this sort of downward spiral into sin and corruption when they don't have a good leader to, to point them in the right direction. And that's what it says, uh, what happens time and time again in the book of Judges. And, and the book of Judges is all about this downward spiral into sin and corruption that the people of Israel are experiencing and how they get in so much trouble that God will raise up a man or a woman to, to, to judge the nation of Israel. And, and, and that's the word judge more like we have a county judge, a leader, you know, not a, not a judge in a courtroom, but, a, but someone that would lead. And, and, and that judge would come up, they'd win the battle, they would would restore the right morality to the nation but then after a few years or a few months that person may fall out of power they may pass away and then the downward spiral happens again over and over again every other page in the book of judges somebody pops up says hey we've been doing things wrong let's get it right let's get it together and then they move on though and then the the nation ends up it's kind of this picture of without Christ we, we can't get it right that's the message of the book of Judges is that without a relationship with Christ, it doesn't matter how good your leader is, doesn't matter how good your politics are, doesn't matter who is in charge. If your heart's not right, when you're left to your own, you're going to fall into that downward spiral into sin. That's what the book of Judges is. And, and really, the same phrase happens over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Almost every page you will read this phrase, but it's in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. Over and over again, you will hear this, at, you know, they'll have a judge that'll come and bail them out and help them win the battle and help them get their morals right and help them get their life right. And then that person would die. And then the next verse says, and then the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord over and over and over again in the scripture. So that's where we are in Judges chapter six is that they've had some people bail them out. Remember, there's a story of Deborah. There, there's different people that have come through and they've helped Israel out. But once again, they find them in this place where the Israels, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. So that by the time they get to chapter six, uh, God has done this, been in this cycle many, many times. And it says, the rest of verse 1, excuse me, says the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. There were consequences to turning from the Lord. There were consequences from not serving the Lord the correct way. There were consequences from doing evil in the Lord's sight. Now, now let's get two things straight, just, just first off. First off, let's don't give these people too hard a time, because if we're honest, you and I, we have gotten ourselves in this cycle before too, haven't we? Where, oh God, you know, we're, we're in a tight spot and we pray and we say, Lord, if you will get me out of this, I'll be at that church every Sunday. And then he gets us out of it and then some of y'all ain't here every Sunday because I am here every Sunday. Or, or you know, God, if you, will, if you will help me get this right, uh, I'll quit drinking. I'll quit, I'll quit doing that. I'll quit seeing that person. I'll quit doing this. And then God helps you out and he has grace on you and he bails you out. And for a while you do it right and you're doing the right thing. But then you start thinking, oh, I'm okay. I can, I can go back to that stuff. And, and we all have done this before, this cycle of God bails us out. We serve him for a little bit, but then it kind of mm, compromise happens and things happen. 
And the second thing I want to point out in this verse is not only does, should we not judge them because we've all been there, but also look at what happens when they turn their back on God. God doesn't strike them down with lightning. He doesn't open up the ground and swallow them up into the depths of hell. He doesn't smite them with plague and disease. What does he do? He simply allows them to live out the results of their choices. Oftentimes, God's wrath, God's discipline is simply allowing you to live with your choice. Simply allowing you to live with the thing that you have chosen. Their sin was that they had gone after other gods. They had started serving the gods of other nations around them. The Midianites served a god, Baal. And this, this god, Baal, the Israelites said, oh, well, we want to be like them. And so we'll worship their god with them. They seem to have, they seem to have it together. And they would worship these graven images made of wood and stone crafted by men. And so instead of worshiping the god who had split the sea for them and made manna fall from heaven for them and made water flow from the rock in the desert for them. Instead, they worshiped false gods made of rocks and woods. And God's wrath, God's discipline was simply to allow them to live out that choice and say, okay, you want to serve that God. Let's see how well that God protects you. You want to serve that God. Let's see how well that God can bless you. You want to serve that God. You're going to, you want to serve the God of the Midianites. You're going to find out what it's like to live like the Midianites. That was the consequence of these actions. His wrath on them was you've got to live with your choice. If you want their gods, you get all their baggage too. And here's the baggage. Verse two, the Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains and caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, martyrs from Midian and Amalek and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes coming with their livestock in tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. God said, I'm the God that set you free from slavery, but you're going to find out what it's like serving another God. When you let sin reign in your life, you'll find out you're right back in slavery. You're right back under somebody else's thumb. God said, I'm the God that made food for you when you were hungry, but when you start compromising with sin and you start flirting with the enemy, you're going to find out that that God can't feed you. In fact, he's going to devour everything that you have. God said, I'm the God that gave you the best land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the best fields for your crops, the best areas for your homes. But when you hook up with the devil, you will find out he can't bless you. In fact, all he's got in his tool belt is death and destruction. See, this is why we preach holiness at this church. This is why we preach consecration at this church. This is why you'll always hear from this pulpit, don't compromise with sin. You'll always hear from this pulpit, repentance from sin and living right, not to earn anything from God because you can't do that. It's only by his grace you can be forgiven and by his spirit that you can be empowered to live right. But why we want you to grow in this thing called holiness, why we want you to grow in this thing called consecration is because we want God's best for you. We want God's blessings on your life. We want God's blessings in your family. We want freedom for you. We want you to live life and life abundantly. And the way you do that is serving God with no compromise with the enemy. 
You can't find that freedom and that abundance when you're still shackled to the chains of sin and flirting with the enemy. You won't ever find the freedom. So the people of Israel, they found themselves all of a sudden overwhelmed by an enemy that they had compromised with. They found themselves invaded by an evil power that, that, that didn't want to bless them but wanted to curse them. An evil power that had no intention of feeding them but of feeding on them. And I want you to know, all of us, we've been in a season at some point in our life where we felt overwhelmed by the enemy. Sometimes it's like these people where the mess that I found myself in is the mess that I made for myself. Sometimes we're in that place where my choices got me in this mess. My choices got me in this place. We turn back the pages of the story and we will see where things have gone wrong. If we were to analyze your choices in your life, you could see, I know when I started making this choice, it led to this result. I, it, I got myself into this. I have been there. I've done it. I've done it recently. <laughs> but on the other hand, there are times in scripture where you'll find God's people in a mess and it wasn't really their fault. They were just minding their own business, doing their best to serve God. But the enemy still came in to try to steal, to kill, and destroy. Sometimes in life, I'm the mess maker. And sometimes in life, I'm a somewhat innocent bystander that just gets caught up in the mess. But can anybody, have you been there before where you could say, you know, you know I, I, there have been times where I was the problem. Anybody agree with me? I'm honest enough to say that. There have been times where it was my fault. But even though I started the problem, the problem got so big that even though I created it, I couldn't fix it. And is there anybody in the room that can say there's been other times where my conscience is clear? This wasn't my fault. I just kind of ended up in the crosshairs of this thing. This wasn't me. I was doing my best, but Satan saw me and tried to come and devour me and pick a fight with me. And it wasn't really my fault, even though I was doing the best thing that I could and doing my best to do right. I still ended up in a mess. Anybody been there before? Wasn't my fault. Just, it just happened. Either way... We've all had seasons where we're overwhelmed by the enemy. We've all been there when we found ourselves sinking down in quicksand and unable to get out. We found ourselves overwhelmed by our own sin, maybe. Overwhelmed by the results of our own sin. Overwhelmed by Satan's attack and Satan's plot to kill and steal and destroy. Overwhelmed in our mental health. Overwhelmed in our thought life. Overwhelmed in relationship problems. Overwhelmed by debt. Overwhelmed with sickness. But God gave me a word for you this morning. You might be overwhelmed, but you can still overcome. You might be overwhelmed, but you can still overcome. And my assignment today is just to give you a few pointers, a few essentials from this scripture, these two chapters in Judges chapter 6 and Judges chapter 7, and learn from the story of the people of Israel and a man named Gideon how we can follow their example to overcome when we're overwhelmed. So I've got six of them. I'm going to preach fast if you listen fast. You got me? All right, I got like 30 minutes, all right? We've got 30 minutes left. You listen fast, I'll preach fast. That deal, all right? So we find the first one of these essentials of how to overcome when you're overwhelmed in verse six of scripture we read to start off. Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites, but then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. And that's number one is you've got to call on the Lord for help. Number one, simple, simple. I know it might sound simple, but it is so foundational to anything else. I've lived long enough and I've been in ministry long enough to learn that some people 
would rather run their life and their family into the ground than admit they need help. Some people would rather watch their marriage fall apart than go to the marriage counselor's office. Some people would rather watch their business go bankrupt than to go find an experienced businessman and ask for advice. Sometimes it's really hard to ask for help. And sometimes, sometimes when we refuse to ask for help, we watch the thing that we need help with crash and burn out of too much pride. To, I've got this. I, I, I can do this. I can fix this myself. You know what the Bible calls that kind of thinking? Pride. Pride. You know what the Bible says about pride? In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before disaster. In other words, if step one is pride, the next step is disaster. If, if you're too prideful to call on the Lord for help and to admit, I need some help with something, that's, it, that's pride. And there's no fork in the road after pride. There's only one other step left when you've already entered into pride. And it's disaster. So he, he says, the, the first thing we need to do is we're overwhelmed by the enemy. They're eating all our food. They're stealing all their land. They're doing everything they can to destroy us. All we can do at this point, we're outnumbered. We're not as experienced as them. We don't have as much wealth as them. We don't have the resources they do. All we can do is call on the Lord for help. Listen, when you got saved, if you're a believer in the room, the first step it took to get saved was to admit and realize you were a sinner in need of a savior. You've got to call on the Lord for help. If you've ever been to an AA meeting or an NA meeting, the first step to recovery for any addict is to admit I've got a problem and I'm powerless on my own to solve the problem. You won't ever get further down the road of recovery until you admit you've got a problem and ask for help. The first step to overcoming the mess that has overwhelmed you is to admit you're in a mess. And to call on the one who can help you. Now watch what happens next in the scripture. Verse 6. The Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. Verse 7. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord heard and sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and those who have oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. So the first thing God's going to do is going to give you a little bit of a Holy Ghost spanking and say, you got yourself into this mess. Then, next verse, the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash and the clan of Abiezar. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of the wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. So they cried out for help. And the next thing God does is he says, I'm going to tell you how you got here. And then I'm going to send you help. I'm going to find you the help you need. 
He hears their prayer. He responds to their call through a prophet. He sends an angel to find a man named Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. And this is where we meet the Old Testament hero, Gideon, a farmer boy just doing his chores, doing his best to provide for his family in the midst of the attack of the enemy, in the midst of being overwhelmed by the enemy, in the midst of the onslaught of chaos all around him. Gideon's just getting it done, man. He's just waking up and getting the chores done any way he can. He's just working at it. And that's the number two essential to overcome when you're overwhelmed. Work at it while you wait for it. Work at it while you wait for it. Get up, do the thing you got to do to make sure you can get to another day. Don't give up. Don't quit. Just work at it while you wait for it. What did the word say? It said he found Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. Now you've got to, we don't grow a lot of wheat in this part of the country, but if, but the idea, anybody know what threshing wheat is? Anybody have an idea what that means to thresh wheat? Okay, we got, we got one. What it is is wheat is grass, basically, right? And it's got kernels that grow at the top of that blade of grass. And that's what we make flour out of, right? Y'all following me so far? When you go to harvest the wheat, you cut the whole stalk down. And if you want to get the kernel out of there, what you do is they would go up on a high hill somewhere and they get a, something that looks almost like a baseball bat. And they would take it or, or a tennis racket and they would have that, that, that stack of wheat here and they just beat the fire out of that wheat, man. They just hit it as hard as they could. And the reason they would do that is they were trying to separate the kernel of the wheat from the husk that's around it. Are you following me? Okay, this is important. So they would, they would take it, they just beat the tar out of that thing until all of the kernels were separated from the husk. And then they would take it up, they'd hope there was a breeze, and they would throw the whole thing up in the air, and the light husk would blow away in the wind, and the heavy kernels would fall to the ground. That's called threshing wheat. That's, that's how you get the kernel without all the husk in it. That's where, remember in the scripture talks about separating the wheat from the chaff? The chaff is that stuff that just blows away. The wheat is what falls to the ground. So you got to be kind of in a high place with a gentle breeze going so that you can beat the stuff apart, throw it up, the trash blows away, and what's left is there on the ground so you can make some flour. So that's what he's supposed to be doing. But the Bible says that he found Gideon threshing wheat, not on a hill, but in a wine press. Now, we don't live in wine country, so let me help you out with that one for a second. In these days, a wine press was a hole in the ground. It was a hole in the ground where they would put the grapes in and then they would have maybe a, maybe a device or, you know, you've seen foot stomping where, you know, videos where people would actually put their feet. But it was a hole in the ground where they put the grapes and they would mash and press down the grapes to extract the juice. So Gideon is kind of doing this backwards. He's supposed to be up on a hill. So he's got a breeze so he can get the wheat. But the Midianites are all around him and they're stealing every bit of food that they can find. So he gets creative and he says, it's not going to be convenient. It's not going to be easy, but I'll just go in a hole in the ground and try to thresh this wheat. And that's where the angel finds him. He's, work, he's finding creative ways to provide for his family in the midst of the chaos around him. He's just getting it done. He says, I know this isn't the best way to do it. This isn't the easiest way to do it. This isn't the way I should be doing it, but it's the only way I can do it. And there's hungry mouths that need to be fed, so I'm just going to do it. He's just working at it while he's waiting for it. He's, just, he's still getting up and doing what needs to be done. Here's my point. Sometimes life is hard, but that's no excuse for quitting. 
Sometimes life is hard. That's no excuse for quitting. Inconvenience is never an excuse for giving up. Okay, we might have to stop on this one for a second. Y'all got to get with me, okay? Listen, I understand life is hard. We want to compare war stories. You tell me how hard your life has been. I'll tell you how hard mine's been. We'll compare stories and see. But whoever's got the worst story, it's never an excuse for quitting on God. It's never an excuse for providing for your family. It's never an excuse for quitting on your marriage. It's never an excuse for, for giving up. God said, wait for it, work for it while you wait for it. While you're waiting for the miracle, you still keep serving. While you're waiting for a better job, you do that minimum wage job you can for to 110%. You be the best fry cook in that place. You be the best floor mopper on the job. While you're waiting for good times to come, you find a way to feed your family and do whatever it takes in the meantime. Your marriage might be tough and it might be hopeless, but you show up at the counselor's office every week, even if your spouse won't, you still show up. You might have to take two jobs for a while to make it happen, but you can get out of debt. You might have to sacrifice a few conveniences along the way, but you can provide for your family. See, some folks, when things get overwhelming, they say, nah, climbing down in that hole with that wheat, that's beneath me. I'm too good for that. If I can't get it with some dignity, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to do what I need to do. But if you're a real father and your babies are really hungry, you'll climb down in that hole and get the wheat you need to get. You'll collect cans on the side of the road at five cents a pop till you got a dollar so you can go buy something for them to eat. You'll, you'll walk barefoot on your way to work to get the job you need to get to make sure they've got a belly full at night. You will work at it while you wait for it. Some folks, it's, it's not that they're beneath getting in to it. It's not that they're beneath working at it. It's just they're not willing to do it. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's too convenient. And some people would rather just pull up the covers. Say, I'll I'll try again tomorrow. See if it's easier. Pull the covers over their head and die of starvation while they're waiting for their miracle. Find Instead of actually finding a creative way to get it done, they just give up. Listen to me, church. What am I saying? When you've called on the Lord and he shows up to answer you, let him find you working at it. Let him find you doing your best. You don't want to pray, God bless me financially so I can provide for my family. And when God shows up with your miracle, he finds you laying in bed or playing video games. You don't want to pray, God, help me out of this mess. And then when he comes to give you your miracle, you're still making more of a mess on the, in the, while you're waiting. You want him to find you working at it while you wait for it. Gideon wasn't too proud to get in that hole and do the hard work. When it gets overwhelming, you can't give up. You can't give in. Never surrender to that storm. Never surrender to that enemy that wants to take you down. You keep at it. You cry out to the Lord for help, and then you step out in faith on the battlefield, saying, my God's going to show up and get me through this. Let's keep reading verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath a tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezar. And Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. That makes sense now, doesn't it, that verse? The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? See, Gideon's still real. He's still got some real questions here. Why is all this happening to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and headed us over to the Midianites? How many thankful God's a big boy? He can handle our kind of whining every now and then. Then the Lord turned to him and said, 
Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon goes back at him again. But Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest of the whole tribe of Manasseh. I'm just a farmer boy. Don't you see me? I'm hiding in a hole right now. I'm not brave. I'm not strong. I'm the least in my entire family. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. See, when the angel shows up to Gideon three times, even in the spite of Gideon's fears, and anxieties. Three times, the angel gives Gideon a word of confirmation and affirmation. And that's essential number three to overcoming when you're overwhelmed is you need to get a word from the Lord. You need to get a word from the Lord. What's that mean? Look what God says to Gideon, watch this. They've cried out to help. Gideon's working at it while he waits for it. And this is the word. He says, you're a mighty hero. The The boy hiding in the ground, in a hole in the ground, You're a mighty hero. The Lord is with you. He says in verse 14, go with the strength you have, I'm sending you. Verse 16, I'll be with you and you'll destroy the Midianites as if you were just fighting one man. Now, a few things here. When God calls Gideon, he's just a farmer boy, doing his best he can, hiding in a hole. Gideon has never fought a battle. He has never won a war. He's never won a battle. He's never achieved a victory. He's simply a man doing what needs to be done. And God sees that. And God says, you're a hero. You're a hero. And I just want to take a minute to honor anybody maybe that's hearing me this morning. You've been through it. You've been working at it. And you've just done what needed to be done to make it happen. And God says, you're a hero. He sees you and the sacrifices you've made and the things you've done to provide for your family and do what needs to be done. He says, you're a hero to the parents in the room that worked so hard so that your kids could have a better life. You're a hero. The men of God in the room that work and break their necks to provide for their families. Come on, can we honor them today and say, you're heroes. You've You've done it. You've been working at it. The single moms listening to me, that you did just what it took to make it happen, did more than you were supposed to, but you just did it because you had babies to feed and boys and girls to raise and grow up. Come on, can we honor the heroes that God just found them doing what they were supposed to do? God sees you in the dark when you're just doing what it takes to make it happen. And he says, I'm with you. You're a hero. Go in your strength. You're gonna, I'm going to give you the victory. You're a man or woman of God that I'm going to use to make a difference in someone else's life. So he says, you're a hero. God is with you. And he says, not only am I with you, but I'm sending you. And where I'm sending you, I'll go with you and I'll give you the victory. Listen, church, when you're going through it, when you're overwhelmed, when you're in a mess, while you're doing everything you can to make it, you've got to find some time to get along with God and get a word from him for you and your situation. You need your heavenly father to pour in that affirmation and that confirmation you need to make it. If you're in the middle of the mess right now, and what I want to tell you is just some practical advice. I know it's not easy. I know you're working overtime. I know there's a lot of distractions, but you've got to carve out some time to get in the prayer closet. You've got to carve out some time to get in the secret place where it's just you and God, and you can tell 
tell him, God, this is a mess and it's not my fault. God, it's a mess and I'm weak and I'm not winning at this. I need to hear from you. I need a word from the Lord. While you're working at it by day, you get in the prayer closet at night and you work in the prayer closet and say, God, I'm not letting go until I get a word. I'm not letting go until I get a promise. I'm going to pour over these scriptures as much as I can until something pops out of me that that's a word from God for me and my family. That's a word from God for my finances. That's a word from God for my situation. And you say, you know what? I'm working at it all I can, but I need to hear from God about this. I'm fasting. I'm praying. I'm spending time in the prayer closet until I hear from the Lord because I have found if I can hear from God, I can make it through anything. I have found if I can get a word from the Lord, I can make it through anything that life brings to me. Because if I know that the one who has promised is faithful, and I know that the one who has promised is sure, then no matter what life throws at me, no matter what tricks the enemy tries to play on me, I know I heard from God and I know he's faithful to keep his promises. When Paul was sailing to Rome, he had had a word from the Lord. He's had an encounter with an angel where the angel said, said to Paul, you're going to go to Rome and you're going to make your case before the Roman emperor. So Paul's like, okay, I'm going to Rome. He gets in the boat. He's on the way. A big nor'easter storm comes up and completely rips the boat apart, completely rips it apart. I mean, it doesn't just sink. It is blown to smithereens. And he tells him before the ship finally sinks, he tells to the crew, he says, listen, I had a word from God and God told me that I'm going to Rome. I don't need this boat. I need the word God gave me. I don't need this boat. I need the promise God gave me. And he says, listen, if you'll stick with me, God promised me I'm getting to Rome. I don't need the boat. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I had a word from God and this storm does not cancel God's word for my life. I'm going to make it. And if you'll stick with me, we'll all make it. And that's exactly what happened. Go read it in the book of Acts. When you get a word from God, you can make it through anything. All you need is a word. Somebody this morning, when we conclude the message, your job this morning, your assignment is to get your hind parts to this altar and get on your knees before God and you crack open your Bible and you seek and you search and you refuse to get up until you've got a word from God. That's what you got to do. You need to get through this mess. You're overwhelmed. The way you get out of it is you seek and you search and you refuse to give up until God gives you a word. Get a word from the Lord this morning. Let's keep reading verse 25. That night, the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Pull the bull, uh, pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah poles standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord commanded. See, he's not hiding in a hole anymore. He's had a word from God. He says, I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to do what needs to be done. And number four, number four of this essentials to overcoming when you're overwhelmed is you got to clean your house. God says to him, he says, listen, if you want the victory, you got to clean some stuff out of your life. If you want the victory, if you want to overcome this, when it comes to victory over the enemy, you'll never be able to defeat the enemy you're compromising with. I'll say that again. You'll never be able to defeat the enemy you're compromising with. You can't fight the same enemy you're flirting with. God said if you want victory over the enemy's attack, you've got to clean your house of the enemy's influence. Come on, somebody. You can't be casting out demons in one room, but then talking to them in the other room. 
Hello? You can't be casting out demons in one room, but going and reading horoscopes and tarot cards and playing with Ouija boards in the next room. You can't be pleading the blood over your house one minute and then using that same mouth to curse your wife or your kids the next minute. You got to clean your house. You want victory over the enemy, you've got to declare total warfare over the enemy. You've got to have an attitude of no retreat, no compromise, no peace treaties with the devil. Listen, church, for you to get to the place where God wants to take you, some things you've got to leave behind. Sometimes you've got to clean your house out of stuff that for other people might be innocent or okay. But it's not right for you. It's not where God wants to take you. But for you, it's not helpful. I know that many of you have heard me tell this before. But just in case you're new in the room and you've never heard it, when I was a teenager, I loved classic country music, okay? Like, I'm, ta- I'm not talking about, like, bro country or pop country. I loved straight no chaser classic country music, the real stuff. The city kids, when I was a teenager, they were listening to Soldier Boy and Flo Rida and Hips Don't Lie. And the older generation is like, Phew. I don't know what you're talking about. The younger generation, I have no idea what you're talking about. But it was popular when I was a kid. Amen? Yes. They were listening to that. I was listening to, there's a tear in my beer and I'm so lonesome I could cry. I promise you, 16, 17 years old, that's what I was listening to. Even the redneck kids my age, they were listening to the country music, but it was like Blake Shelton and Jason Aldean. I was listening to Willie and Merle and Haggard and Jones and Johnny. I was listening to Hello Walls and Folsom Prison Blues and He Stopped Loving Her Today. That was my music. Are you with anybody with me today? I'm not preaching against it. Tyson, just tell me he was at a country concert last night. He had a good time. I think that's great. I'm glad you had a good time. But I was a teenager who was also struggling with depression. And I was a teenager who was struggling with trauma in my own life and suicidal thoughts. And I was listening to those old, depressing, lonesome, done-me-wrong Life is dark kind of songs. And it came to a point in my young 20s. I was already in ministry. But I was still struggling with depression. And I was falling apart inside and I need help. And I remember I was praying and asking the Lord one day, Lord, would you just help me with this cloud that I just can't seem to get out from under? And just gently, very gently, not angry, but gently, I felt like the Holy Spirit spoke this to my heart and said, You'll never beat this if you keep feeding it with the stuff you're listening to. That stuff is affirming your state of mind. It's making it darker. Listen, I'm not saying it's, not, it's wrong for everybody to listen to that. No, I'm not condemning anybody. But I know what I've come out of. And I know what I've been through. And I know that if I let that stuff have too much of an influence, I can slip very easily right back into that stuff. So I had to clean my house. To this day... It is very rare that I don't listen to something that's some upbeat, Jesus-centered gospel music. It's very rare that I listen. I don't even like slow Christian songs. Too sad for me. I need something to get me going. Not that it's wrong and not that I never, ever listen to anything, but I have to know I can't let that have an influence in my life. So you have to clean house. If you want victory, what is it that's feeding the chaos? What is it that's feeding this thing that's overwhelming you? You got to kick it out. You got to have a ruthless attitude toward it. You got to say, nope, it's not for me. It's not what I need to do. I had to clean house. 
Gideon said, if we want to beat these enemies, we've got to stop compromising with them. We've got to stop worshiping like they do. We've got to get ruthless. We've got to claim total warfare. We've got to clean out the house. It's like in the book of Acts 19. Paul comes to the city of Ephesus and he meets some new Christians there. But they're new baby Christians and he starts preaching and teaching them more about how to follow Jesus. And after a while they start getting convicted because they know it's at home. And so they're at church and Paul's preaching to them. And they say, hang on, Paul, we got to run home just real quick. And they all go run home and they get their books with their uh, magic uh, spells and, 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 and incantations, the Bible says, and, and, and all their equipment that they use to, prov- to, to perform like witch doctor rituals and, and all this idol worship stuff. And they all bring it back to church and they have a big old bonfire. And they say, listen, if we're going to follow Jesus. We're going to follow him all the way. And we're going to get rid of anything that would distract us from following Jesus. We're not going to compromise with the enemy. Somebody might need to go home today and pour a bottle down the sink. Somebody might need to go home today and light a match and burn some stuff that shouldn't be in your house. Somebody might need to go home today and say, you know what? I'm not compromising anymore. I'm too deep in this mess. I don't want to compromise with this mess anymore. God has given me a word. He's promised me a way out, but I've got to clean house this morning. Maybe there's something that's not even a sin. It's just a distraction. It's just something. It's not sinful to listen to a song every now and then, but if it's the song that's feeding your depression, you got to quit. That's what, that's what happened with me. God said, if you want the victory, clean it out. Let's keep reading chapter seven, verse one. I'm almost done. So Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, he got that name because he tore down the altar to Baal, so they, they named him the destroyer of Baal. Don't you like that? What well, if people start calling you the devil destroyer? <laughs> so Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Herod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. And the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves with their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is afraid or timid may leave the mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them left and went home, leaving 10,000 who were willing to fight. But the Lord told Gideon, there's still too many. Bring them down to the spring and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord said, divide the men into two groups. And one group put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up. And then in the other group put all those who kneel down and drink straight from the stream. Only 300 men out of the 10,000 chose to cup in their hands the water and drink from their hands. The others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths. And the Lord said, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send the rest home. So Gideon collected the provisions and the ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home. But he kept just 300 men with them. Here's essential number five to overcoming when you're overwhelmed. You got to build the right team. Not everybody is called to fight your battles with you. Not everybody is going to understand your willingness to fight against this thing. Not everybody is going to understand your philosophy of total warfare and no compromise. Not everybody is up for the battle. You need the right people supporting you. You don't need naysayers. 
You don't need people who are afraid of Satan. You don't need people who are compromising with sin. You need some other spirit-filled, blood-bought, tongue-talking, Bible-toting people that are going to say, I'm going to fight this thing with you no matter what. You need to let God choose who's in your circle of influence. You need to let God choose what voices you listen to and what voices you close out. We got to let God say, nope, that's relationship. That's not for this season. It might have been for another season. It might have been okay, but this giant you're facing, this battle you're facing... You need some prayer warriors. You need some prayer partners. You need some accountability partners. Here's my point. When you get serious about fighting against sin and Satan, not everybody's going with you with that. Not everybody's going to agree with you. Nobody's, not everybody's going to stand with you. Not everybody can go where God's taking you. Even just the fact that 22,000 of them were just honest enough to say, I'm scared. I'm scared. You need somebody that's not scared to pray for you. That's not scared to get in the altar with you. That's not scared to fast and pray and intercede for you when you need it. He has 300 men left to go fight the tens of thousands of Midianites. But he says God's still going to give him the victory. It's not the size of your team. It's the faithfulness of your team. You need to strategically look for those partners, those accountability partners, those prayer warriors, those saints, those people that will call you out when you're wrong. Those people that will encourage you when you're down. Those people that will build you up when you're struggling. Those people that will pray and touch heaven until they find the breakthrough that you need. You need some comrades at arms that will say, we're not afraid to fight the enemy. And we're not afraid of the pushback the enemy is going to bring against us. We're in this together. Come what may, we're going to be your intercessors. Come what may, we're your prayer partners. Come what may, we're going to help you. We're going to fight with you. We're going to be like Aaron and her when Moses' arms got tired in the battle. And we'll help you even when you're tired and when you're weak. When you feel like giving up, we'll hold you up. You need to have the right team when you're in the battle. The last thing, let's read the end of the story. While I do that, could I have some gentlemen help me with just put this table right here for me, please? <clears throat> that thing will roll off of there, so just watch that if you wouldn't mind. Chapter 7, verse 15. Then Gideon returned to the Israelite camp and shouted, Get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. He divided the 300 men into three groups. And he gave each man a ram's horn, a clay jar, and it says he gave each man a torch. We're going to try not to burn Believer's Fellowship down today. He gave each man a torch to put in the clay jar. Are you with me so far? This is the scene. They're going to battle, and these are the weapons. He says, a ram's horn, a clay jar, and a torch. And he says, just follow me. Y'all watch, make sure nothing burns down while I'm preaching. He says, keep your eyes on me, and when I come to the edge of the camp, do exactly what I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horn, blow your horns too all around the entire camp, and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. It was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and a hundred men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. So what they did was, they, there's 300, they split into groups of a hundred each, and they surrounded the camp of the Midianites on all three sides. And he said, when you hear me do this, the rest of y'all do this too. So they get to the Midianite camp. Suddenly, 
they blew the ram's horn and they broke their clay jars. They blew the horn. I'm not going to do that today because it's real loud and also I'm not really great at it. But they blew the horn. They broke the clay jars. They shouted. And watch what happens. Suddenly they blew the ram's horn, broke clay jars, and then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. 300 horns, 300 jars smashing. They held the blazing torches in their left hands, the horns in their right hands, and they all shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as the Midianites rushed around in panic, shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords and those who were not killed fled to places far away this is the scene he says listen you're just going to confuse them so bad that they start fighting in each other you're going to win this battle and never have to draw your sword you're going to win this battle and never have hand-to-hand combat you're going to win this battle simply by confusing the enemy. 300 clay jars breaking all at once. 300 ram's horns blowing all at once. 300 torches lifted up into the air. 300 men shouting, and it wakes these men up in the middle of the night. They're scared to death. The enemy has come in, and they don't know who's who. It's dark. They can't see each other, and they just start fighting whoever's near them, and they kill each other, and then the rest of them run away. They win the battle. Now, here's the thing. I believe, as I was reading this, that the Holy Spirit spoke to me about these three items. The ram's horn, the clay jar, and the torch. See, in the Bible, the trumpet, the ram's horn, the shofar, is a symbol of praise. It's a symbol of praise and worship to the Lord. It's the call to worship every day. And they would blow the ram's horn to call people to worship in the tabernacle or in the temple. Call people to prayer. It's the sound of praise. It's it's the sound of, of, of calling people to shout unto the Lord with victory. So many times in the scripture, Israel would go into battle and God would say, don't send your best fighters first. Send the ones that have got the ram's horn and the ones that know how to sing into the battle. And every time when God would send the praisers out first, the army would win the victory. The ram's horn is the sound of praise. And and I want you to know that there are times where your praise is your best weapon against the enemy. See, your praise confuses the enemy because the enemy sees with his eyes what you see. He sees your situation. He sees that cancer diagnosis. He sees that high bill that you can't pay. He sees that thing going on in your life. And then he sees you still praising and worshiping. It confuses me to understand how to comprehend that you could still be worshiping God and praising God with the shout and with the praise in the midst of all that you're going through. So you... When you're in the battle, the way you go on the offense, the way you fight and get in the fight with the enemy, you go on the offense by praise. 
By saying, I'm going to worship the Lord no matter what comes, what happens. I'm going to lift up a shout. There was one story in the book of Numbers where the enemy tried to come against the people of Israel. And he called a witch doctor named Balaam to go and prophesy against the people of Israel. And Balaam said, I tried to prophesy, but when I opened my mouth, all I can speak is blessings. And here's why he said, he said, I can't curse them because the shout of the king is among them. In other words, they're praising so much that anything I could try to say that would curse them in the spirit realm comes out blessings because their praise reverses the curse. Come on with me, somebody. And then he says, not only are you going to blow the ram's horn, but you're going to take the clay pot. And if you read in your Bible for long enough, you're going to read about earthen clay vessels over and over again in the scripture. And the scripture uses the clay vessel as a, as a metaphor, as a symbol for your life and your body, that you're a created, build, a created being, that a potter created this clay vessel, that you are not the one who created it, so you're not in charge of it. It, it belongs to the potter who made it. And it says over in time, over time and time over again in the scripture that God uses broken vessels, that God uses broken earthen vessels. And that I believe that as you're reading the scripture, this is a symbol of when we take our body, our flesh, when we take our sinful nature and we let it get broken before the Lord, when we let it get broken before the Lord, we're not prideful and haughty. We're just broken pieces of clay before God. When we crucify our flesh and say our flesh amounts to nothing if it's not in God's hands. Our flesh amounts to nothing if it's not in God's will. And so he says, I want you to begin to crush your flesh. I want you to begin to crucify your flesh to the point of brokenness before the Lord. How do you crucify your flesh? You say no to sin. How do you crucify your flesh? You start fasting and praying. How do you crucify your flesh? You say not my will, but your will be done, Lord. And when you do that, when you get to the altar and you allow yourself to Leave, check every bit of pride at the door because you know you're in need and you allow yourself to get broken before the Lord. When you allow yourself to be poured out before the Lord in prayer and fasting, crucifying your flesh, denying yourself and following him, what happens? God pours out his spirit. And listen, that's the last one right here. What is fire? Come on, somebody. What is fire and oil represented in the scripture? It's this idea of the Holy Spirit. See, when you start to praise, when you crucify your flesh, God begins to pour the oil in. God begins to pour the oil over you. God begins to light the flame and tongues of fire come and there's power now and there's strength now and there's faith to believe for the miraculous and there's faith to believe God to heal and there's faith to believe God to do what only he can do. But first you've got to open your mouth and say, God, I'm going to worship you no matter what comes. Second, I've got to crush my flesh and say, God, it's not my will, but your will. I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to spend time in the altar. I'm going to get broken before the Lord until I get breakthrough. And then God pours out his spirit and lights the flame. And Paul says, Timothy in the New Testament, he says, fan into flame, stir up the gift of God inside of you. Tongues of fire falling. This sounds like to me, when you start talking about the shout of praise, the wail of brokenness and mourning and the tongues of fire, that sounds to me like a good old fashioned Pentecostal altar service where there's some people they're shouting and they're giving God 
God prays for the victory. There's others that they're weeping and mourning as they crucify their flesh on the altar. And when you do that, God pours out his Holy Spirit and he lights the flame. And that totally confuses the enemy. And you can win the battle without ever having to fight. All you've got to do is open your mouth in praise, crush your spirit, crush your flesh and let your spirit grow and let the Holy Spirit be poured out on your life. This is the key to overcoming when you're overwhelmed. This is the key to defeating the enemy in your life. So many of us, we've tried to defeat the enemy in hand-to-hand combat. We've tried to defeat the enemy in our own strength. And the Lord is saying to somebody this morning, your weapons are not like the world's weapons. Your weapons don't make sense to the world. But if you'll get the trumpet out and you'll get the shout of praise out and you'll choose to worship no matter what's going on in your life. And if you'll start fasting and praying and denying your flesh and giving yourself over to the Lord in holiness and consecration, he will pour his spirit out and light the flame and the enemy will run in fear from you. This is the word of the Lord for you today. When you're overwhelmed, you can overcome. Pastor Katie, would you come this morning? We're going to put this out before we give anybody an asthma attack. Listen. I know it's after, it's 12.02. So today's altar call is just if you're hungry. I'm not talking about hungry going down the Mexican restaurant. I'm talking about I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed with things going on in my life. And for some of you, I said, Somebody needs to get to the altar today on your knees with your Bible cracked open and you don't leave until you've gotten a word from the Lord about your situation. Somebody needs to get in the altar today and say, I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray and crucify my flesh until I get the victory. Somebody needs to get in the altar today and say, I'm just going to praise and thank him for the victory in advance and believe God to provide a way out for me. But I want you to stand all across this room We won't have a formal dismissal today. When you have to leave, you have to leave. But if you're hungry this morning for a solution that can help you overcome when you're overwhelmed, these altars are open. I want you to step out right now. If that's you, step out right now and say, God, I need a miracle. Lord, I'm overwhelmed by the enemy, the attack of the enemy. I'm overwhelmed maybe even by my own sin. I'm overwhelmed by my own mistakes sometimes. I want you to step out. There's no shame in this place. This is the place where you do battle. This is the place where you get the victory. You get the victory when you begin to praise at this altar. You get the victory when you begin to crucify your flesh at this altar. I guess there's only just just me that's overwhelmed every now and then. But I'm telling you, if you want victory today, this altar is the place where it's won. You won't win the victory on the battlefield. You'll win the victory at the altar. At a place where you're willing to crush your own flesh where you're willing to submit yourself to the Lord in such a way that you get broken before Him, saying, God, I can't fix this on my own. Lord, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on broken vessels today? Vessels willing to lift up a shout of praise, willing to lift up worship even in the midst of the storm. Vessels that are willing to fast and pray until we get breakthrough. Vessels that are willing, Lord, to wait for the fire of the Holy Spirit to come. 
It's going to envelop us and engulf us until we get victory over the enemy. Lord, we step out today and say, give us victory, not because we deserve it, but because of your goodness. We're going to work at it while we wait for it. We're calling on the Lord for help. We're believing God for the next thing. We're cleaning house today of anything that doesn't need to be there. We're making the right team people who can have influence in our lives we're going on the offense with praise crucifying our flesh and being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit